All right, uh, it's a little bit late, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, preach <clears throat> this morning. And you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> Of course, every Sunday morning we meet together to worship the Lord, and this day is a little special because it only comes every so many years where Christmas Day falls on the Lord's Day. And the record of his birth is confined just to four chapters in the Bible, two in Matthew and two in the Gospel of Luke. And these stories connect the Lord Jesus to Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, They display the wonder and glory of his birth as heaven and earth rejoice, and they reveal to us the human characters God used to nurture and protect his son. But the story before us also unfolds great conflict as Jesus Christ came into the world. It introduces us to numerous rulers and their responses to the newborn king. Some search for him and have a desire to worship him, but not all receive him with joy, not all desire to worship him, not all view him with goodwill. And from day one, there were those who were set out to destroy God's son because their hearts were full of uh, selfish ambition, pride, and a lust for power. Still others who should have had a sense of wonder and expectation have really little response at all to the coming of the Lord Jesus. So we do find conflict uh, even at the birth of Christ. It centers on how people view him, what they think of him, how they respond to him. We've seen this in our study in the Gospel of Mark Uh, where this tension plays out as people respond to the Lord Jesus in different ways. And Jesus himself later will warn the people that listen to him about this conflict, this tension. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. This indicates that someone who submits to Jesus as king may well bring conflict and division into their own life. So as we look at this conflict of kings, we're going to start off, first of all, with Jesus, who was a true king in his own right. Uh, Matthew portrays him as the descendant of David and the Messiah King of Israel. Then we have a group of three others. Not all of them were actually kings, but they were definitely rulers and leaders in their respective uh, places of uh, power. The wise men, or magi, were in positions of authority in foreign countries. King Herod was the illegitimate king of Israel, as we shall uh, see. And finally, we have the chief priests and scribes who were supposed to be spiritual rulers leading Israel in worship and obedience to God. And each of these represents a way 
in which we can respond to Christ in our own day. The key question is, will we accept him and bow to his rule over our lives, or will we reject him and bow to our own self-rule? So as we begin, let's first of all consider Jesus, who is the true king. And in this story, he's not actually the centerpiece uh, in certain ways, but the story is all about him. So we have some indications here that he is truly a king, the Messiah of Israel. First of all, we have prophetic indications. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning a coming Messiah or a savior king of Israel. One of these is found in our text that we read earlier in verse 6. This is a quotation from uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, telling us where the Messiah, where this ruler uh, would uh, be born. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a shepherd who will shepherd my people, Israel. So this is the place where he'll be born. He is called a ruler and he will shepherd the people of Israel. There's another prediction found back in Isaiah uh, chapter 9. So let's turn back there and just quickly read those verses, which also portray uh, the Messiah as a coming ruler, a coming king. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the gospel authors, especially Matthew, connect those prophecies to Jesus as their fulfillment. Then we have genealogical indications. Uh, Both in Matthew and Luke, we find a genealogy uh, that Jesus goes back to King David, both through his uh, mother and his adoptive father, Joseph. Uh, And uh, Matthew traces this in chapter 1. If you look at verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David unto the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So you follow that all the way up from David to the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke also records a genealogy in chapter 3. And so the significance is here that that. Jesus is of the kingly line of David, as the Old Testament prophesied. There is also the angelic indication, if you go over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and the announcement that was made by the angel to Mary, that she would be the vessel God would use to bring his son into the world, we have the same uh, uh, prediction If you look at verse uh, 30 of Luke chapter 1, 
Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is not just an earthly kingdom we're talking about, but an eternal heavenly one. And finally, we go to our text today, and we have the contextual indication as these wise men come to Jerusalem to find someone they identify as the king of the Jews. So Jesus clearly is a king. Most importantly, he's king of kings and lord of lords to whom all people someday will bow the knee whether they receive him as their own king or not. So let's take a look here a little more deeply into these other rulers who were drawn into conflict with each other and Christ uh, at his birth or around his birth. First of all, we have the wise men coming from the east representing Gentile rulers. Now, after Jesus was born, this did not occur on the day Jesus was born, as some people think, and uh, even as our little nativity scene here shows, this is sometime after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's in the days of Herod the king. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So uh, these men were not actually uh, kings politically, uh, as we, uh, we were going to sing, uh, we three kings of Orient are. There, they were men, however, of power and influence in their uh, country. They would have been in the courts of the kings and the rulers. Uh, tradition has given these men names, Melchior, Belteshazzar, Balthazar, and Gaspar, but we really have no historical facts that support or verify their identity. We assume there were three because they bring three gifts to the Lord Jesus, but we don't exactly even know the number. We do know they were an ancient caste of men dating back at least to the kingdom of Babylon, and uh, uh, Daniel was among them. They were called Chaldeans back then. He may have been considered one of them, but of course we know he worshipped the one true God. The Magi studied a wide range of subjects. They studied astrology and astronomy, hence their interest in this star that they followed. Uh, they interpreted dreams such as those in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar uh, in the days of Daniel. Many delved in the magic arts and served the so-called gods of their foreign kingdoms. And they were scholarly men of the day. They were educated men. They were seeking knowledge, seeking truth, uh, certainly not finding it in some of the ways that they uh, uh, were studying. But it seems that the group who, bought, who sought the Israelite king were generally seeking, uh, seeking a great person and understood that supernatural events uh, were taking place. So why did they come to Jerusalem? Well, as we read, they came to find a person, someone they address as king of the Jews. And they were guided by the star to that city, and they sought to worship this newborn ruler. 
But we kind of wonder, how would these men from the east, probably uh, Persia, how would they have known about this event so far away? <clears throat> Even King Herod, uh, the current ruler, had no knowledge of it until they came and wanted to know where this king was. So these men uh, would very likely be familiar with ancient literature, literature, including portions of the Old Testament. Now, this may have been partially due to the exile of Judah uh, in the land of Babylon. These men would be interested in other religions. It's likely the Jews would have carried their Old Testament with them. They may have had portions that they could study and uh, uh, would become familiar with you know, the prophecies concerning a king or their Messiah. Perhaps like Numbers 24, 17 was known to them, which says... There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. And it would be unlikely that the Lord himself disclosed this revelation as he did in verse 12 here, telling them to go home a different way. So if that's the case, they believed what was revealed either through the word of Scripture or direct revelation from God, and they followed this unusual star. Many attempts to explain the star by natural phenomenon have been made, but I believe it was a supernatural sign to guide these men to the Lord Jesus. Now, so when they arrive in Jerusalem, <clears throat> Jerusalem what do they do? Well, uh, they begin to inquire. They begin to ask uh, we're not sure where they begin. Maybe they just uh, are going around to people. Have you heard about this? Where's the newborn king? They may not have gone directly to King Herod at first, but perhaps, but finally, uh, that's where they end up. And maybe they're thinking the normal way would be, well, if there's a king coming, he would be son of the current king. And perhaps they thought he was related to Herod, that Herod might be the father of this king. So they arrive in Herod's court, trying to determine where this person is who's been born king of the Jews. Now, uh, these men were non-Jews. Their response to these events is a joyful one when they find out what's going on. Over in verse 10, it tells us, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So, uh, the wise men come, they tell where the, the uh, place of the, the, the uh, uh, child is supposed to be, and uh, <clears throat> the star reappears, and uh, it suggests that the star had disappeared once they got into Jerusalem, and when they see it again, they rejoice greatly. They see this as something wondrous, something miraculous, perhaps supernatural, guiding them to the place where the child is. And then in verse 11, they arrive. Uh, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. So by this time, Joseph and Mary had found a more permanent place to stay. This was likely weeks, maybe months after the Lord Jesus had been born. But these people come and they fall down and they worship him. Now, we might expect that. In their own country, they hear that a prince is born, uh, someone's uh, uh, born in the king's home, 
and everybody, of course, uh, wants to give their respects to the king and to this new child. But who would expect a king to be born in a foreign land and go all this distance to worship this foreign king? There's no royal servants. There's no king and queen. There's no pomp and circumstance. All there are are these people who would be probably on the level of a peasant living in a humble home in the city of Jerusalem at this time. And they were men not bowing down to um, human royalty, but to heavenly uh, divinity and somehow they recognize this so they bring to the lord jesus these gifts that are fit for a king gold frankincense and myrrh all right so these wise men from the courts of gentile rulers are really a portent of future people who will come to the lord jesus christ for salvation Uh, Their response is respectful, one of worship and adoration. They bow in obeisance to this newborn king who will be the savior of humanity. We're not sure how much they would have grasped of that, but their response was proper. And as the gospel of the kingdom spreads uh, after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ many years later, who responds to it in the greatest numbers? As it first begins, the Jews uh, come to the Lord Jesus. Many of them are saved, but but when it spreads out to gospel nations, uh, those converts far outnumber the Jews over time. And the church, of course, today is mainly consisting of people that are non-Jew, Gentiles, if you will. Now that brings us to another king, King Herod political ruler of Judea. Herod the Great, history tells us, who was the progenitor of the Herodian dynasty. Now, from the Gospels through the book of Acts, this family will clash with the Gospel and its ambassadors. Now, Herod was not really an Israelite at all, but an Edomian. That means he was from the ancient people of Edom who came from Jacob's brother Esau. So he wasn't really a true Jew, but an Edomite. And the reason he was now on the throne is that historically, the Edomites moved westward into the regions of southern Judea And in the time of the Maccabees, between the Old and New Testament period, they were forced to become uh, proponents of Judaism. They needed to be religious in that way. They were forced to be that way by the Maccabees. Now, in 37 BC, Herod was appointed by Rome over the province, uh, province of Judea. And the Roman Senate declared him king of Judea. So imagine how the people of Israel would feel having this kind of foreigner be their ruler under the power of Rome, whom they hated. So the situation was really not a great one. Herod, however, was very intelligent. He was a talented man. He was ambitious. He was a born leader. 
He loved his power, and he didn't trust anybody. He had a lot of building projects that he wanted to complete, including the renovation of the Jewish uh, temple. And so he exacted heavy taxes from the people to get that, those projects completed. He was very cruel. He was ruthless. Uh, he was near psychotic in his fear of losing his power of being deposed. He was jealous of anyone who might be a threat to that power. Here's what's really kind of amazing. He even executed three of his own sons and his most beloved wife, Mary Amney, who was falsely accused of adultery, as well as two brother-in-laws because he thought they, were threatened, uh, they would threaten his power. So all this explains his murderous opposition to a supposed newborn king of the Jews. So let's take a look here at uh, what we see. Now, when Herod hears about this in verse 3, he's troubled, and all Jerusalem's troubled with him. They're wondering what in the world's going on. We don't know uh, how uh, the people uh, might have been thinking. They might have been thinking more properly than the king himself, but he's troubled. Why is he troubled? Well, here's a possible threat to his power, to his throne, to his future dynasty, to his sons, his family. So in his mind, this so-called king needs to be sought out and destroyed, not worship, as the story shows us. So what's he do? Well, he calls the religious leaders versed in the scriptures to find out where the Messiah is supposed to be born. He then calls the wise men back to him. He finds out where the star appeared. And so he sends them on to Bethlehem with the ploy that he also wants to worship this child in verse 8. But, of course, the Lord warns the, the Magi not to return to Herod, to find a, a different way to go back to their country. And Herod's rage at being deceived like this and not sure uh, where he can find this little uh, child that's supposed to be a king, beginning in the verse 16, it tells about his massacre of the little children less than two years old, making sure that from his viewpoint, he killed this supposed coming king. So this is just the beginning of the conflict between Herod's dynasty and the Lord Jesus, his disciples, and the gospel. After his death, which is going to be within one or two years, his son Herod Antipas uh, well, his, son, his sons would be divided up in their control of this whole area. And his son, Herod Antipas, would rule Galilee, the area where Jesus would minister. He would be responsible for beheading John the Baptist. His grandson, Herod Agrippa, would later execute James, the brother of John, the apostles. When he saw this pleased the unbelieving Jews... He commenced to put Peter in prison as well, but the Lord got Peter out of uh, prison in a miraculous way. Then the Apostle Paul would witness to Herod's grandson, Herod Agrippa II. You remember that story where he uh, uh, witnessed to him, but 
Herod would refuse the invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He would say, probably in sarcasm, almost you would persuade me to become a Christian. Um, That's not going to happen, is the idea there. Now, Herod and his descendants loved their power. They loved their position. They loved their authority. They loved how they could uh, uh, rule others and achieve their own will. But they hated Christ and actively opposed the gospel of truth like many continue to do today. Now that brings us then to the religious rulers of the day who were called chief priests and scribes in verse 4. Now these people, this group, should have been the most positive and joyful in their response to this news that was brought to the city. They're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. They're not really kings, but their role was just as important as the kings in the Old Testament because they're supposed to be leaders of worship. The prophets were the spokesmen of God, so they had authority, and the kings were supposed to cooperate with those leaders. Now, the chief priests ranked highest among them all, and from that group of priests, the high priest uh, was selected, and he's the one who would lead the proceedings on the Day of Atonement once a year. They were the keepers of the temple, they were in charge of the daily sacrifices in the worship of the Lord, and they were supposed to be leading people in the proper worship of God, and how you're supposed to live before God but they had become selfish. They were corrupt. They were more politically minded than spiritually minded, and they were proud of their positions of authority uh, and what it brought to them. They were all very wealthy men. Now, we've already run into the scribes in our study of uh, Mark's gospel, and you'll remember they're supposed to be teachers of the law, By word and example, they were very versed in the scriptures. Uh, They knew all about the Old Testament. And you remember that they actually added laws to the laws to the laws, uh, trying to define them even more deeply. Um, But the purpose really was to help people understand God's law and uh, how to obey God's law as part of your worshiping the Lord. These people, because they knew the Old Testament scriptures, should have been looking for the coming of Messiah. They should have uh, been filled with wonder and and, uh, wanting to know, well, why do you believe this? And then putting together their knowledge of the scriptures to find out where this um, person who may have been the king of the Jews uh, was, was at. Herod himself believed that it might have been true or he wouldn't have acted the way that he did. But these people uh, seemingly have very little response to the whole thing. Uh, Their response to the quest of the wise men or lack of it is really one of the amazing things here in this chapter. Um, As I mentioned, 
They should have been the first to rejoice and to dig into this and to find out. But we find nothing other than their quote of the Old Testament where this is supposed to happen. And there's nothing else mentioned of what they do. It seems that they think this is a non-important event. Uh, they're, they're not excited. They don't want to go with the Magi. Uh, instead, there's no reaction at all, apparently. They're just a few miles away from the place where their Messiah might be born, and they have no interest in it. They're detached from it. There's not even a real response given. So as time moves forward, and Jesus enters his ministry, as we found from our study in Mark, these same people, these, these supposedly religious group of people, is going to oppose his claims, his teachings, even his miracles. There's a hardness of heart to that which should have been most important to them. So we come full circle in this conflict of kings. We have the Lord Jesus, the true king, being born there in Bethlehem. Now he's moved to the city of Jerusalem with his parents. And uh, he came the first time, we know, to provide the means for us to be saved from our sins. He gave his life at Calvary and rose from the dead to redeem our souls. How much of this they knew back at the time of his birth? Probably not very much. Uh, but the Bible says he is going to come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he comes again, it won't be to save, it will be to judge his enemies and rule the world. So it's wise to receive him now and worship him as the Magi did. And this is the only proper response to Jesus, the Savior king and we have this all revealed to us today in a much clearer way than back then in that day and we are wise not to reject it then we have king herod and his progeny who represent really self-rule self-authority the authority of myself to control my life and to do as i please and this is the disposition of all people who are born in this world and who don't come to the Lord Jesus as their Savior. We're born that way. We have a natural inclination to rule our own lives, to have our own way. We want to do our own thing. We want to put ourselves above others, uh, sometimes run other people's lives the way we think they should be run. That's what governments do a lot. And we spurn anyone or anything that would challenge the authority of self-rule. And as such, we reject Christ as our Savior and our King. Uh, it's interesting that I read an article yesterday that people in the United States under 30 are increasingly becoming atheists, agnostics, or nothing in regard to religion and uh, they're doing so at an astounding rate. It's predicted if the rate continues, by 2045, Christianity will be a minority religion in the United States. So there you have the modern-day Herods. 
We go our own way. We do our own thing. We reject what God has revealed. And uh, uh, we can see how the effect it has, not just in an individual life, but on society itself. Well, then we have that group of the chief priests and scribes who represent really self-righteousness. The world's full of people who may follow a religion. They believe if they keep certain rules or codes of living, they hold certain beliefs, they try to be good or faithful to their belief system, that somehow this puts them in the favor of God. It's kind of a works religion, a self-righteousness that will keep me in favor with God. And in a sense, you're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself and your own works. And that's what the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious rulers of the day were doing who should have known better. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't really care about the scriptures. They worshiped God on the outside, but on the inside, uh, uh, they were uh, just as lost as Herod was. So uh, they they failed to realize their own sinfulness that they're lost, that they need the Lord, that no code, uh, no rules, no legalism is, is going to, to save them. They don't think they need a Savior because they're fine the way they are. They're blind to their true condition. And there are millions of people that would fall into that category. So everyone has to decide who will be the ruler of their life. If you choose to rule your own life, or if you think that following a particular religion can save you, you're going to die in your sins. It's as simple as that. Only those who will come to the Savior, the Lord Jesus, receive his gift of salvation and make him king of their life are going to enter his eternal kingdom. Only they will experience the joy of the best life now and that which is to come. So who is on the throne of your life? To what or to whom do you bow? Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, as we think about the Lord coming into the world, uh, we always hear about the joy and the peace and uh, things of that nature, but Lord, we also know there was conflict. There were people who... Uh, were not happy that such a person came into the world. Uh, There were people who were ignorant of why he came. And the reason is because we have sinful hearts. We want to rule our own lives. Uh, We think that we're okay the way we are. Uh, We uh, may be self-righteous. But Lord, help us to realize that you came to save us from these things, to save us from ourselves, And that by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, uh, we have our sins paid for. And uh, we can live a a life that is um, under your power, under your strength, under your goodness and your help. And in that way, we can please you. So Lord, as we go through the rest of this day, help us to be thankful that Jesus came to be our Savior King. And Lord, each day that we would bow to his authority over us and his salvation of us. 
Bless these words to our hearts, we ask today in Jesus' name. Amen.